Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reverb. I'm joined on the mic by Alex. Alex, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good, Ben. How are you? Good, thanks. So today we have a very special guest with us. We have Dr. Brett Vacoder, whose work covers the motion picture divisions of the massive Cold War era propaganda office, the U.S. Information Agency, or USIA. His recently defended dissertation investigates the relationship between the USIA's filmic and televisual output and the agency's bureaucratic structures. He also serves as the co-head of the USIA pilot within Dartmouth College's Media Ecology Project and is a collaborator in the University of Richmond's Distant Viewing Lab. Brett, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing great. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us. We really oh, appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So, Brett, we'd, uh, we'd like to get started just hearing a little bit about the process of discovery. So, this archive that you've come across, the USIA, is little known in scholarship, and I think our listeners would really benefit from hearing about how you came across it, what that was like, and what you've learned about it throughout the process. Well, your listeners aren't alone in not knowing much about the USIA, even within our field, uh, media studies, film and media studies. Not many people know of the USIA Motion Picture Archive, and I myself, until about five, six years ago, was ignorant of its existence, too. It was actually when I was reading a book by Peter Lev on 1950s cinema that I encountered a small footnote that talked about the scope of the USIA Motion Picture Archive, 500 million people, annual viewership of 500 million people in a given year, and I asked myself, how the hell did I miss this, or how am I not aware of this? So upon further digging, you know, I read a little bit about kind of uh, the legal environment surrounding these materials, and it wasn't until really the early 1990s that the materials began to thaw in terms of domestic access, and by 2012, they were fully accessible. And so you know, for those reasons, a lot of American scholars don't quite know much about USIA media uh, because of that domestic distribution and uh, d- domestic distribution band that existed throughout the life of the Cold War. So you know, that brought a host of opportunities, but also a host of challenges too. Uh, you know, when I went and went into it, it was a pretty kind of frightening thing because of the scale of the archive, 20,000 motion pictures. But uh, you know, it's ultimately kind of it proved to be worth my time. Uh, and I'm excited to kind of talk about some of those discoveries today for sure. But it's it's certainly kind of a new thing within film and media studies. I know rhetoric, especially discourse analysis, has begun to kind of investigate it too. Uh, you have people within photography, exhibition studies. So a lot of people are finally, within the United States context, are finally kind of coming to this massive corpus of multimedia propaganda. Yeah, and 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 while it is a hallmark of like important scholarship to even just do that discovery work in the first place of you know sort of bringing archives like this to the forefront, I think also the actual agency that you have investigated the propaganda of is really a fascinating and kind of another one of those things that our listeners and probably a lot of other scholars don't even know what it means. Like a lot of us have, before reading and hearing about your dissertation, I had never heard the acronym USIA or heard the U.S. Information Agency referred to before. And I I think, I mean, it's kind of funny, you know, how a lot of, a lot of these kinds of like U.S. governmental departments, I'm sure it's similar elsewhere, will change their names or, you know, kind of uh, form and dissolve. and, And it's hard to kind of keep track of of, of whose materials are, are where and who's doing what. Like, for example, the U.S. Department of Defense was, I think, called the Department of War all the way up until, like, the mid-20th century. And so, again, we, there's these 
histories of, of all these agencies and things. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the history of the USIA. What, what exactly was this agency and what was it designed to do? So in the wake of World War II, the United States kind of clearly recognized the value of you know, what they would maybe call information warfare efforts or having information apparatuses. And it wasn't a new thing to the United States in World War II, of course, that goes back all the way to the Spanish-American War, especially with motion pictures. Films were central to the propagandizing of the Spanish-American War. You have the Creole Committee in World War I, and then, of course, Signal Corps, the Office of War Information during World War II. But you know, as we transitioned out of World War II, it became pretty apparent that it was going to be a war of information, a war of reputation with the Cold War. And come 1947, 1948, a lot of these kind of apparatuses that existed during World War II began to transition into what were kind of several kind of iterations of the USIA before it kind of launched in 1953. So we have quite an alphabet soup between 1945 and 1953 <laughs> of you know, all these kind of information efforts. They held on to one branding thing. They call it abroad the USIS or the U.S. Information Service. So a lot of times when you hear people talking about the USIA, you'll hear it referred to as the USIS because that's what everyone outside of the United States knew it as. But come 1953, they separate from their kind of attachment to the State Department. They become an independent agency, and you know uh, they call themselves the U.S. Information Agency. And Eisenhower clearly put a lot of weight in the role the agency played in this early Cold War moment. So in addition to giving them a fairly hearty budget, kind of upping their infrastructure, expanding their scope, uh, he also gave the director of the information at USIA a seat on the National Security Council, which oh, wow. suggests that you know it's he saw this as part of the kind of the broader effort of kind of total war within the Cold War uh, context. So uh, yeah, it's kind of a really fascinating. It's not quite the State Department. It's not quite diplomacy. It's not quite intelligence. You know, it's. It's a little bit of all these things. Um, you know, their motto was "Tell America's Story," you know, but that you know has kind of a host of purposes. Um, you know, in telling America's story. So yeah, it was essentially they would call themselves a public diplomacy or information office. They formed in 1953. They weren't shy of the word propaganda early on, but over time they began to realize the negative connotations that were associated with that word. So they came up with several euphemisms. The, the key one, which I just mentioned, was public diplomacy, which was a theory that yes. kind of emerged in the 1960s uh, through USC, and it's kind of how they identify themselves today. Like, information is public diplomacy now. But, yeah, again, it's I don't, I don't think it's wrong to call it propaganda, but propaganda with it kind of brings with it such you know, heavy connotation, you know, that it can often kind of steer the conversation about the USI in several directions that don't actually kind of reflect the diversity of their operations and the diversity of their media. Oh, yeah, that's so fascinating. So I've been thinking about when you say it's it's an attempt to tell America's story, and yet when when you think about this disconnect that exists between what we know about the USIA and all of us coming into it sort of with fresh eyes, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the Smith-Munt Act and how that was so seminal in not only a distribution ban, but really in what we don't know about this seminal archive in what seems like something so innocuous. They're telling America's story, yet why was it excluded from the public eye? Why was it uh, hidden in such a way if it doesn't, right, if, it, if it's an attempt at a sort of mediated or a different propaganda, why exclude it from the public eye in such a way? So 
even though they were not shy to use the word propaganda for maybe the first 10 years of the agency, there still was an acknowledgement of the reservations the American public would have in understanding and knowing that there was this massive propaganda office that the U.S. is funding. And so coming out of World War II, you know, people associate propaganda with you know, the efforts of Germany, the efforts of Italy, the kind of the fascist countries, the Axis countries. And so they kind of had to kind of find a way to kind of walk around that. And the domestic distribution man that the Smith-Munt Act outlined in 1948, you know, that was kind of part of its motivation, was to kind of steer the conversation away, away uh, within the American public, away from the fact that this was essentially a propaganda entity. You know, it's the dissemination of a message that elevates and disseminates, you know, a pro-America message. At the same time, I think, you know, there was a fear among members of Congress that if these media were to be distributed within the United States, that they could be appropriated for political purposes. So, for example, come the time of Richard Nixon, you know, there's a short documentary on the silent majority. Watching it in retrospect, of course, we can kind of you know, pick it apart and kind of acknowledge its kind of flaws and see how this was in a lot of ways, you know, a kind of a dog whistle type kind of rhetoric that Nixon employed with the silent majority. But you know, if that was, in theory, able to be circulated within the United States, how would that kind of affect the texture of the election, the outcome of an ele- a given election? Using kind of a taxpayer-funded you know, arm of the government to kind of you know, elevate certain policy goals and certain branding goals, um, I think, of a given presidential administration. So thankfully, I think, you know, they were, they had the foresight to see how this could be used politically within the domestic, the domestic sphere. So I think that was one reservation in the 1948 Smith-Munt Act uh, that lent itself to the domestic distribution then. But interestingly, too, there's some evidence that shows that they conflated what the USIA did with the Posse-Comitatus Act. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. This is Reconstruction-era law that basically says the U.S. can't use its military upon its own citizens. Right. Um, and we've seen that, unfortunately, kind of come back to the fore with kind of recent counter-protest uh, yeah, efforts that no the kidding. administration is employing. So in a lot, in a, a strange way, by kind of invoking uh, the Posse-Comitatus Act, they're saying this is kind of an effort, a militaristic thing, or it's it is part of our strategy in terms of kind of this global conflict of the Cold War. It's conflating information, you know, film, radio, uh, exhibitions with a tool of war. So it's it's hard to pin down the exact motivation for the domestic distribution, but I think that's kind of the ecosystem of forces that ultimately kind of placed that domestic distribution ban in the Smith-Munt Act in 1948, so five years before the agency officially started. That's really fascinating. The foundation of the USIA and the and the Smith-Munt Act exist in this kind of historical context of America kind of redefining itself and its own conception of what its role should be in the world, right? Like I, when I was reading your work, uh, especially uh, about kind of the mission and the stated goals of the USIA, I was reminded of the uh, famous or infamous, depending on how you view it, op-ed uh, of 1941, uh, Henry Luce's The American Century. I don't know if you're familiar with this with this editorial, it is essentially we we actually interviewed uh, Patricia Dunmire about it on on our second episode, where she talks about in in this in this editorial the way that Henry Luce describes what America is and what its role should be in the world is is a marked shift from thinking about America as a sanctuary for ideals of freedom and liberty and democracy to 
a powerhouse of freedom and liberty and democracy in the world, something that is meant to be spread. We are supposed to be the the good Samaritans of the world. Just having it having it up here, I just I wanted to read from it in brief, just because it it kind of feels to me to be a, kind of an important part of this trajectory t- that kind of influenced the scope of the USIA. He writes, The other day, Herbert Hoover said that America was fast becoming the sanctuary of the ideals of civilization. For the moment, it may be enough to be the sanctuary of these ideals, but not for long. It now becomes our time to be the powerhouse from which the ideals spread throughout the world and do their mysterious work of lifting the life of mankind from the level of the beasts to what the psalmist called a little lower than the angels. So... <laughs> Again, it's in 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 sort of very high flown rhetoric. There yeah. uh, is kind of describing this this process of America not being an isolationist country, not sort of trying to be protectionist necessarily, and especially re- emerging out of World War II as this kind of military powerhouse, seeing itself as a a bastion for democracy and for the spread of it throughout the world. I think it really kind of helpfully contextualizes what the USIA is functioning as in this American political context. Yeah, absolutely. And the idea of American as an exceptional thing, an, ex- an exceptional idea, right. of course, goes way back to John Winthrop's City Upon a Hill notion that Reagan, of course, lead, later reappropriated within his own rhetoric. A lot of people think it's Reagan's, but it's, it goes back to uh, colonial America. Yeah, but what's fascinating come the 20th century and especially come you know, post-World War II is no longer are, is the United States kind of a model for exceptionalism. It, you know, we need to kind of create vessels by which to disseminate that model of exceptionalism. And that's really, I think, what at least some of much of the early motivation to the USIA was meant to do. Of course, it was countering Soviet propaganda too, et cetera. But really, kind of the hubris of that early moment is, can be easily conflated with the hubris of that Winthropian notion of we are a city upon a hill. We, we, we should tell America's story because it's the right story. And you see that to a certain extent coded within the creation of the Smith-Munt Act too. It's this idea that democracy will naturally arise if democracy is introduced. And so it's this kind of deterministic, you know, uh, understanding of the world. It's, they're criticizing the Marxism of, you know, and, and uh, kind of deterministic idea of communism well, actually kind of still employing that themselves in many of their operations. It's kind of a fascinating a fascinating thing. The, the fact that Luce actually calls it mysterious work of lifting the life of mankind from the level of the beasts is just like, yeah, I mean, it, it does kind of, it implies that, yes, I, I am practicing a kind of magical thinking for what, <laughs> for what like, <laughs> the ideals of freedom and democracy do. But I'm just going to leave it at that. Like that's assumed <laughs> to be a tacit. That's a tacit assumption that that you can share with your audience that democracy will certainly bring civilization to the quote unquote beasts of uh, yeah whatever that implies about <laughs> other nations. Who can say? Yes. Yeah, so I w- I was curious too when when you think about how this is functioning to disseminate this model of exceptionalism as you say and allow for the natural rise of democracy. I'm curious about the films that most attracted you from this archive because mm-hmm. it's a it's a wide swath. Even from the films that you introduced to us stylistically, there's there's such an admixture of aesthetic form. So I was hoping to to hear more about those films that you chose to focus on 
and and why it is you felt that that aesthetic form was perhaps emblematic and and also useful in disseminating this sort of modified form of propaganda, right? What you call a public diplomacy. So how does this media format show that? And what what are some of the affordances that this stylistic and aesthetic form offers as well? Yeah, so I came into my project with big ideas of how I could focus and hone, you know, the the type of films that I, you know, wrote about. Coming in with the understanding that may, you know, maybe I should focus on war documentaries specifically because, uh, you know, as I've talked about in my work, you know, in a lot of ways they reveal the moving parts of the agency most prominently because you operationalize these documentaries much more quickly in response to an active conflict. But as I mentioned earlier, this I- idea of what the Cold War is, it was new territory. Um, it was difficult to pin down what it was. And so the definition of war took on several different shapes you know, as I kind of moved along in the project. So no longer was a traditional war documentary as we maybe would have seen in World War II. The only way by which I could really kind of enter the archive. Um, the war documentary took, again, you know, many different forms. And so the first ones I wanted to look at were, I thought, documentaries that justified the existence of the USIA. These documentaries that I, what I call thesis films, which is not my favorite terminology. It was very difficult to kind of pin down a good term for these. These thesis films are strangely kind of propaganda to justify propaganda. And so, like many war documentaries that came before, they they show kind of the country kind of mobilizing around a common cause. And typically that's, you know, here's everyone working in the factories to produce a tank. You know, here's the tank being shipped overseas. And here's the, the good men fighting the good fight, you know, over, over, uh, you know, over in Europe, etc. But here process, you know, because this is a war of information, looks very different. And because this is, you know, there's not necessarily a clear national enemy, rather it's an ideological en- uh, enemy within the Cold War, like they had to kind of represent process in a kind of a novel way. And so these thesis films, um, namely America Presents America and the U.S. Overseas Information Program, two films from the first five years of the agency, show process transparently, they show somewhat fully, um, and they frame it in a way that suggests participation you know, on behalf of those to whom they're messaging. So. Not only are we telling America's story, we hear back from you um, on how you interpret America's story. You even participate in this narration of America's story. And so this sense, you know, process is uniquely rendered um, in these thesis films. Later on, I focus on the war film differently. So during Eisenhower's presidency, they really kind of sought to amplify this sense of total war, this aura of war, to create a productive binary of kind of good versus evil, democracy versus communism. And so they leveraged uh, a lot of wartime images, images of violence and conflict as a way to kind of create this sense of war without actually getting heavily involved on the ground in a lot of these wars. War in the case of you know, Kennedy, the Kennedy administration is basically positioning, you know, for example, Cuba and Castro as kind of this other to a market-based economy. And then leveraging something like the Cuban Missile Crisis to say, look, they're kind of a a cog in the machine of 
Soviet uh, communist, like Soviet communism. Let's look to these other Latin American countries to say, like, this is what kind of a free market-based economy looks like. And so, like, it's this weird kind of ecosystem of, yeah, what does war look like? And then Vietnam, it took a hard turn back to traditional war propaganda using images of violence. And then, you know, come Reagan era, we have kind of another amplification of kind of this old Cold War, you know, seeking to kind of create a sense of conflict without actually participating in conflict outside of a handful of kind of small local scuffles like in Granada in 1983. So that's kind of a long way of saying, you know, I, I look at war through a multitude of lenses, sort of the war documentary through a multitude of lenses. It's not the traditional conflict-based, kind of violent image-based documentary. It takes a lot of different shapes that are moldable to economic, uh, you know, ideological principles that the USIA sought to disseminate. Yeah, that's I, I really appreciate that the historical trajectory of these propaganda movements that you've given us and, and the specific focus on the thesis film and the focus of a lot of these kinds of things on on process as like the kind of uh, the main pro- like this like style is the substance right like it kind of it kind of collapses that into you know it's it's a it's a sort of transparency move right look at how we are making this we're being very upfront with you about how we are distributing this and I can't remember if you if you mentioned this spe- uh, explicitly but a lot of these were intended for international audiences, correct? Essentially, all USIA films were intended for international audiences. It's it's right. weird. In a couple of these thesis films, uh, like, like America Presents America, it seems as if they're speaking to an American audience to justify funding the USIA and having the USIA in the first place. So this kind of goes back to that idea of democracy and the ideals that America identifies as central to the American identity as being kind of naturally manifest within all these other kind of international audiences. So they're appealing to international audiences almost as if they're American uh, within these thesis films. And that, you know, is of course kind of goes hand in hand with kind of this idea of kind of participating, you know, in this bureaucratic structure, in this creative structure of the USIA too. And to clarify, um, when I say that Roughly, in, the numbers are hard to pin down, roughly 75% of USIA labor was international labor. So what does it mean to tell America's story? What does this process look like you know, when there's so many, so many people of you know, a variety of backgrounds kind of constructing you know, the, the messaging uh, of the USIA media? Well, and, it, and I think to that end, we we did want to uh, pipe in a little bit of audio, and and we'll watch together. Uh, sorry, Brett, I'm sure that this is probably the million oh. million and first time that you've seen uh, <laughs> America presents America, as you mentioned. But but I think we wanted to present some some audio and and uh, and some a little bit of analysis of this, uh, some live time analysis, so that we can kind of talk through some of the the not just the language, but also the images that our that our audience can't see uh, of things that are <laughs> things that are going on here. That that really speak to the the style and substance of these thesis films as you're as you're telling us about them. The first clip that I want to play here is early in the film. It's after there's I, I did watch the whole thing in preparation for this. It's it's amazing. the The first couple of minutes are spent explaining kind of the the disseminative structure i don't know if that's a word i just made it up <laughs> it's the, a good word. the dis- disseminative disseminatory structure of the <laughs> the USIA about you know eisenhower gives this press briefing and and all of the reporters from the the national uh, national newspapers to the local dailies are you know going to their bureau offices and writing up the you know disseminating the the hard facts about uh, about america 
And then in this next clip, we get, you know, we all of a sudden we're zooming in on the the office of uh, Theodore Strybert, who is addressing a concerned citizens council who is curious about the role of the USIA and what it does. This is the headquarters of the United States Information Agency, the home office to 200 posts in 80 countries, where the organization is known as the United States Information Service, USIS. Interested in the work of this new, separate, and distinct organization, which operates under the President of the United States, a Citizens Committee calls upon its director. Won't you sit down? I'm awfully sorry to have kept you waiting. We've been busy this morning with the President's press conference. Now, I understand your committee wants to know just what the United States Information Service is doing. How are we spending the taxpayers' money? Our responsibility is specific. It is to make the United States government's policies and the actions taken to implement them known and understood throughout the world. Policies like the President's proposal on the development of the peaceful uses of atomic energy, President's mutual inspection plan, NATO, CEDO, our military and economic assistance programs. In addition, we provide current information on American developments in important fields like science, industry, agriculture, education. We're telling America's story to the world. The worldwide threat of communism lends urgency to this effort. As the president has said, the central fact today is the life or death struggle between communism and democracy. The United States Information Service is vigorously opposing communism with facts and with ideas emphasizing the values and the aspirations we share with the people of the world, reaffirming our peaceful intentions. For this is truly a war of ideas. Here, let me show you. Communist propaganda is spread by a vast worldwide machine. It starts at the top with the presidium of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. This propaganda machine at work at every level goes down to the local Communist Party member in every country in the world. Many operate in front groups, and their party membership is kept secret. Local Communists, working through these fronts, play on every local tension to inflame the crowds. Too often, this approach pays fat dividends. The ultimate collectors of the dividends, the Kremlin bosses, use the smiling approach, too. Communism is now engaged in a powerful new propaganda offensive featuring direct personal contacts and cultural activities. Communist visitors are wooing public opinion wherever they go. They are also distributing motion pictures and hundreds of millions of magazines, pamphlets, books. In many cases, the production quality is quite high. The Reds are also trying to impress the world with their economic strength. They are displaying their industrial equipment. They're offering shrewd loans and economic aid. Now these methods are being used throughout the world to support the communists' talk of peace. But peace to a communist means a world controlled by Moscow. The long-range aim of communist peace offensive is, as always, world domination. The short-range aim is to encourage neutralism to uh, divide and confuse our allies, to isolate the United States. The latest red propaganda line demands from us not only awareness of its sinister intent,
but an aggressive counter-effort. This doesn't mean that we merely counterpunch the communist moves. It means we concentrate on positive ideas and programs in support of our national interests. That's where the USIS comes in. So I think what's really fascinating about a lot of these thesis films is there's, I think, an implicit cognizance of the fact that what the USIA doing is very similar to what the Soviets were doing in terms of their information right. efforts, in terms of their propaganda efforts. And so you know, there's very slight of hand attempts to kind of other the, the Soviet uh, the Soviets' uh, operations to kind of frame it as something similar but distinct, you know, with uh, ultimately kind of a very different end goal. You know, of course, you know, when we look at it a little more closely, like the idea of kind of manifesting democracy throughout the world, it's not terribly different from the way they're framing uh, this idea of, quote, world domination uh, from the Soviets. So it's interesting that in the film in which they show the step-by-step process of the bureaucracy, too, uh, later on in the film, you know, they have this kind of, you know, know, for, for our listeners, there's a you know, Stryber kind of introduces a citizen group to a graph of the uh, of the step-by-step process by which a Soviet message is disseminated. Whereas this film at the same time is literally kind of taking a speech by Eisenhower and then showing how that speech is kind of packaged and then disseminated through multiple media. And so, you know, a popular word today um, in political discourse is projection. Um, <laughs> and I think uh, to a certain extent, this is you know, uh, a projection of the USIA recognizing that some of its operations, especially in these early stages, aren't terribly different from Soviet operations. You know, it's taking speech from, you know, the the head of government, putting it through this vast bureaucracy, and then having an on-the-ground presence. Right. You know, they're very similar infrastructurally in that regard. But it's, so that's really what always stuck out to me within that moment in particular, um, is the way by which they're describing the Soviet machine, as they'd maybe call it, and how similar it is to much of the USIA bureaucracy. What's so interesting to me in that moment, too, and what you're speaking about in terms of projection is this theory of media that the USIA appears invested in. They seem to suggest that there's a particular immediacy to the way that information is disseminated to the public, both a domestic and an international audience. There's no in-between. And with the insidious efforts, which can only be understood by the soundscape that's being projected right here, the the rabble rousery of the crowds and the music. The bombastic music, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I I was hoping you could maybe talk about that a little bit. It, It appears to be this really interesting way of speaking about what media is and, and I don't know if that's something you've explored more in depth or if you could speak to that yeah it's they leverage the idea of media um, you know it's you know riffing off I mean McLuhan comes years later than this but the medium is the message there's a couple ways by which they leverage the idea of the media itself but also kind of the the structures by which the media is distributed so in this case like in a lot of ways, like as this film will later show, speed is often conflated with truth. If you take the president's words and you quickly disseminate them, there's less opportunity for them to be misconstrued or to be uh, reframed as something that they're not. In that sense, kind of the logistical soundness is conflated with truth in a lot of ways in the case of the USIA. Later on, too, like they, there's kind of a technocratic angle you know, with a lot of the way, the way they talk about a lot of media as if they 
and also the way they use media. So much of the USIA was kind of involved in efforts of modernization. And of course, it's tied into this, in this natural manifestation of a market-based democratic government. And so in a lot of ways, they're using the media to affirm or reflect this kind of modernization, this idea of modernization. So let's take, in the case of motion pictures, uh, they had something called mobile film units in these first 10, 15 years, probably, of the agency's existence. And they would, basically, it's just this mini RV that would drive to the most remote areas um, throughout the world. They'd bring several film reels, books, maybe magazines, but they'd take a big screen out of this mobile film unit, they put it on top of this mini RV, and then they project a film to uh, a remote area. And kind of the showmanship of, of that, the showmanship of the medium, like you know, the, the spectacle of images, in a lot of ways kind of affirmed the messaging of that media too. It reflected the messaging, like the democracy, market-based economy will bring you know, this technology, it will bring kind of dams and uh, vaccines and all these things. And the spectacle of motion pictures, in a way, kind of help kind of create that sense. They they complement that idea. We're going to give you a modern medium, a modern kind of technologically advanced medium to kind of make this argu- argument for modernization. So in that sense, they use media in two ways. Like there's kind of a logistical angle, but also kind of a technological angle in leveraging what media can do to, you know, again, affirm or underscore the message. Yeah, that's really interesting that like the propaganda itself is both an instantiation of like a material instantiation of that, you know, modernization, that media that is that is, you know, it's 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 this sort of hyper media now where, you know, it's moving pictures, it's sound, it's all these things happening in this big spectacle at once. And it's about itself as a medium, right? Like it's it's very, very self-referential in its in its way. And just to kind of tie that back into, you know, since it is describing the material structures of the the red communist threat in its dissemination of of that kind of propaganda, I, I also read the, I, I think it, the way that they're talking about their own propaganda efforts versus that of the, the communists it, later in the film, just to just to let everyone know who, who doesn't want to go and watch the entire thing, but I would recommend it because it is very interesting. They talk about sending out local field agents to act as liaisons with local populations in different countries. They talk about, you know, I know that they had mentioned in that that laundry list of different strategies that the communists uses, you know, cultural events and uh, and emphasizing economic strength and things like that. They explicitly talk about like William Faulkner visiting Japan as part mm-hmm. of an educational exchange program. Jesse Owens going to uh, to teach children in in Africa, or and I think the the only other the only other clip that I that I think I, I really wanted to show and talk about with you guys was this very brief one. This one I thought was was really fascinating, and it speaks to this overall question that I have about audience and about how they tailor a message for an international audience who uh, either might be unknowing or potentially skeptical about the message that is being disseminated here. Paralleling this culture campaign is an effort to describe America's economic system, a product of our democratic way of life. People's capitalism, an exhibit here tested in Washington, explains the fundamentals of our free economy, which have resulted in the people themselves owning the resources of production and sharing the benefits. Again, I just wanted to share that really briefly so, so that was the first time I'd ever heard the phrase "people's capitalism" <laughs> in any in any sort of context. 
But also, at least to me, it stood out that the way that they were describing what people's capitalism was, the announcer says it's, you know, the free market system that results in the people themselves owning the resources of production and sharing the benefits which to me sounds like a simplified definition of communism. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so 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 I guess I I my question is to what extent is this is this a consistent strategy across other pieces of media where you're kind of taking taking a concept and and performing this definitional switcheroo uh, to to use a very very uh, unacademic term where you're basically supplanting the definition of one thing with the definition of its opposite. Yeah, it's it's not something that the USI always employed, but there are certain moments uh, in its history where it's certainly it employed kind of a Soviet rhetorical framework to sell and advertise U.S. ideology. So. Another key example of this is during Kennedy's presidency. So for those that are familiar with Kennedy's policies, you know, he's, his domestic and foreign policy were both defined by this conceit of the new frontier. And so this conceit is really kind of extrapolated out onto, rather than kind of being a you know, frontier in which it kind of, it's acquisition of land or kind of, uh, you know, movement kind of uh, kind of geospatial movement it's kind of an ideological frontier uh, so like let's chase after the best ideas let's use science and all these things let's build dams let's say again create vaccines like so it's that kind of that modernist uh, modernization language but in his articulation of the new frontier kennedy also deliberately uses the word revolution and so in part this is kind of to undermine the the way revolution is defined within cuba at the time it's meant to be another revolution there's a revolution of the market in which again people kind of recognize the way by which you can self-determine through a market-based economy so that was maybe you know to me like the way that kennedy and the usia at the time employed this idea of revolution a global revolution they even said that explicitly in a lot of their media to kind of realize a global kind of interconnected economy uh, market that to me is maybe kind of the most prominent example in which again they're packaging a very different ideology within the same kind of rhetorical skin um, that the Soviets are employing and this a big reason for this is because they're you know and this is true of other topics that they they worked on is you know they know they're kind of speaking to audiences that are exposed to a Soviet and American media especially in kind of the non-aligned countries, you know, many places in Africa and Asia, Scandinavia, they're all non-aligned. You know, they kind of worked in that kind of liminal space between like, yeah, you know, they, they, they knew they had to kind of, you know, kind of wrestle directly with many of the Soviet ideas. And so another interesting manifestation of this is USIA films and even their employment uh, structure is actually relatively ahead of its time. So like, for example, there are more stories about people of color, there are more stories about women in a lot of USIA motion pictures because this is something the Soviets would speak to in their own propaganda, the way, and it's true, like the US marginalized, you know, uh, people uh, systematically through their laws. And so they were trying to kind of reframe that story um, within that kind of, kind of that liminal space, you know, between, uh, so they're taking the Soviets, you know, on their own terms and kind of addressing it head on. Um, so I'm not sure if that makes sense, but it's oh. it's kind of fascinating to look at it through the lens of kind of gender and race too, um, because the USIA projects the United States as something far more progressive than it was uh, throughout much of the Cold War. 
Yeah, oh, that. that's am- th- that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I guess we we didn't we didn't have the term trickle down economics yet, so we had to work within the you know we had to work within the branding of uh, of what of what you know the Soviets had, and just sort of say, yeah, yeah, the people own the resources, sure. <laughs> I I have to say, in terms of of race and gender, I mean, you spoke about the war films, but because it is such a diverse archive. And some of those other samples that you sent us, I watched um, Have a Coke, which mm-hmm. I feel when, when you're speaking about this being sort of progressive in what it's projecting, I felt that this was attuned to some of the different layers of experience. So just kind of a brief synopsis of the film, it, it explores the narrative of three Ethiopian international students at a university in California. And... I thought that the the diversity of experience it wasn't unidimensional it wasn't staid what you might expect from an organization like USIA and it it felt to to kind of resonate with different levels and types of experiences by an international student and didn't make it all encompassing or enclosing so I think you're definitely right it, it's doing some really interesting work in race and gender and in addition to a film like Have a Coke I, I was wondering what else you you kind of saw when you were thinking about these issues and the way that it presents diverse experience. Well, I think the kind of motivation behind kind of these expressions of diversity and these expressions of policy are certainly questionable um, and kind of the infrastructure itself. I think when you do involve a multitude of voices within an agency, those voices inevitably come through. And the films in turn reflect maybe what I'd call a dialectic, you know, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's voices that are maybe at tension with the structures in which they participate. And so Havocoke is one of those films. And I think in kind of a kind of geopolitical sense, or maybe kind of a, a sense of kind of like different kind of national voices or community based voices, there's also kind of an interesting tension too. like, it's how you, know, I, you, you guys came to my defense, I talked about films during Vietnam, like how can the South Vietnamese express you know this 10-year war at the time that is caused almost directly because of kind of colonial powers and kind of the scars that the colonial powers left how can, can they express the, the tragedy and the trauma of that while also kind of participating within this USIA structure um, and that tension really comes through so it's, it's really fascinating in that regard and even in an infrastructural level too like this is this is I think this is directly attributable to kind of the labor that participated even back in Washington you know, they were one of the first government, big government agencies to kind of really systematically hire women, uh, to systematically hire people of color. Carl Rowan, who was the director at one time, was actually, I think, at that point in time, the person to have achieved the highest office in the American government because he had a seat on the National Security Council. I'm not positive of that, but I'm, I'm fairly certain. Um, and it was uh, 1966, I think, 1967. He, because he had a seat on the National Security Council, he was, at that point in time, the, like, had the highest position of government achieved, unless you kind of count members of Congress, but he had a, you know, a seat on this executive executive branch panel of the National Security Council. So it's it's a fascinating kind of aesthetic history, message history, but also a fascinating kind of bureaucratic and labor history. And it's not just race and class, too. A lot of the films, again, because they're working to kind of directly respond to Soviet attacks, they focus on stuff like the AFL-CIO. There's several documentaries wow. on the labor movement uh, within the United States and the history. And a lot of the talking points that you'd expect to come from the Soviet Union 
kind of boil to the surface or bubble to the surface within these films. So it's it's really fascinating. If you were to kind of take it in a vacuum, be like, this is actually kind of a fairly, again, forward-thinking, progressive picture of the United States. You know, that's you know, not too far from the truth in some cases. And of course, there are other films that you know are very ham-fisted propaganda. But you know, with twenty thousand films, you're going to get a little bit of everything in the archive. Certainly, that's fascinating. Just to, just to clarify, they were being laudatory of the AFL-CIO and like and and labor power. Absolutely, yeah. There's wow. there's yeah there's it's almost uniformly in any film that kind of represents unions and like it's it's laudatory yeah absolutely it kind of praises and elevates the story of the afl cio uh, among other kind of union efforts just just given just given the history of labor politics in america that is astounding <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's there's a book to be written on it uh, yeah. for sure yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, hey, but hopefully, hopefully by uh, hopefully by somebody in this Zoom call. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so at so at this point, we've I, I think Brett, you've given us a really good understanding of what I think your dissertation really gets at the heart of, which is the way that in this propaganda idiom here, style is not only used as an as an aesthetic choice, but is also ideological in many ways too, right? Like it's actually showing a process by that that is supposed to exemplify the ideology that you're trying to get across, right? This ideology of truth telling, of openness, of transparency is is supposed to be sort of instantiated in the very stylistic itself. I, I, I'm not misrepresenting your your argument there. No, not at all. And this can okay. take on you know again this this aesthetic of kind of openness or you know maybe you could use the word freedom even you know took shape in other ways too like they the USIA was known for distributing a lot of the works of avant-garde motion picture artists right. um, like a Stan Brakich or a Maya Darren they distributed several of their films there's even a incredible kind of abstract film called Manifesto with the drumming of Max Roach that's this kind of interpretive <laughs> kind of or this kind of interpretation of like creation so it's you know it's and it's just kind of like uh, scratching on film and animation and all this stuff and so you know this idea of kind of transparency and kind of freedom also takes place aesthetically within a lot of kind of the avant-garde uh, in which they work too so it's it's a wide scope well that's that's amazing and i and i think it's it's also very insightful because i think it talks about a dimension of propaganda that i think is very often overlooked which is that the style sort of and the and the substance kind of taken together as as you know not totally distinct entities in themselves are ideological and do have a politics like aesthetics do have a politics to them when it comes to things like this absolutely and and to that end, well, first and foremost, I wanted to give kind of an open question to you. Do you see things like this in our contemporary moment? Are there are there any things that stand out to you as an implementation of that principle of of style being used to communicate an ideological message in in any kind of propaganda? Uh, I hate to do this, but I'm going to kind of go to kind of a language based kind of uh, interpretation of this. You know, maybe sure. speaking to the kind of the you, know, you rhetoricians a little bit. It's sure. I, I don't mean that, I didn't mean to make that sound. <laughs> It's, you I love, rhetoricians. I, you rhetoricians. <laughs> I, I love the work uh, the rhetoricians do. No, we love um, your work too. Thank you. But before we, before we, before we, um, you know, we talked before the podcast, of course, and you mentioned uh, Joanna Hoffman's yes. video and her work for the New York Times, and it made me think about the New York Times a little bit um, more broadly, yeah. and aesthetically, kind of the, the language choices that they employ, both sidesism of the New York Times, you know, it's there's kind of this really kind of fascinating kind of aesthetic manifestation or dis- discursive manifestation that you know, ultimately kind of betrays certain elements of their agenda. It's 
almost they're more focused on representing both sides or kind of at least kind of performing you know both sides as them to where that ultimately kind of subsumes like the messaging itself um, in some cases and I, I think in the case of Tom Cotton's editorial for example like Ooh. it's an abhorrent thing of course like if I like you know, this performance of both sides this performance of like journalistic transparency and process and all these things it reminds me a lot of the USIA like we have to perform that we're giving you facts we have to perform that we, you know, we are you know, fully open about the way by which we kind of arrive at this kind of media messaging it reminds me again of that kind of that structure to a lot of these kind of big national newspapers like let's give a space for Tom Cotton to talk about uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The sending Easy. the troops article that's sending yes. the troops. That's yeah. right. Yes, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's um, yeah. Why give a space for that? Like, and, it, and it's this performance of transparency, and it's not necessarily aesthetic, but I guess it does take shape within kind of the discursive terrains of the New York Times for sure. Is I I almost think that, and I mean maybe this is this is getting into opinion sphere, and I think that's that's fine. We we do have a little bit of that on on this podcast as well. <laughs> that that objectivity can be an aesthetic right like like to a point where if you get so wrapped up in this idea of presenting objectivity as kind of like this is this is what we do this is our standard of i guess of rigor and and other things like that like i think that those can be thought of aesthetically as a this is good this is you know we can evaluate this paper as being good because they are you know they're level-headed they're rational they are you know like on an even keel and not not presenting one side over another which again allows for things like that Tom Cotton op-ed to make it through the editorial barrier. And of course um, this takes place within televisual news too, of course, like this, this yes. kind of cult of objectivity. Um, yes. that, you know, and you know, we still see, though I think thankfully it's begun to kind of been reeled back. It's, it's been reeled back within the last three to five years. I think in particularly because of school shootings, they've recognized like you don't need to kind of give these graphic details in order to kind of really kind of tell the meaningful story, the necessary story. But in television news, there still is a tendency to exploit you know images of violence, warfare, atrocity of peoples that are you know uh, victims of violence, warfare, atrocity, stripping kind of the aesthetic veneer and kind of showing. Yeah, the graphic nature of some of these images is going to again elevate this reputation of objectivity. This is something that film, of course, you know, we talk about in film history. It's not just televisual news. Like this is something that goes, you know, again back to the Spanish-American War with motion pictures. But it was really, you know, the scale on which it kind of began to take place. Like really, kind of the, it, the scale expanded, I should say, uh, with the emergence of 24-hour television news. Um, and so aesthetically, absolutely, objectivity is rendered through these exploitative images of bodies and peoples. So so I think we we did want to talk through a contemporary example of this propaganda. As you mentioned before, the one that I thought of as I was reading through your work was this video op-ed that a, a New York uh, comedian named Joanna Hausman made uh, for the New York Times called Venezuela's Crisis, What My Fellow Liberals don't understand. There is total chaos in Venezuela. Hunger, lack of medicine, and latest, nearly the whole country had a blackout. But most of the conversation in the States focuses on what Trump is doing about Venezuela, and rumors are spreading that the U.S. is considering military intervention. All options are open. 
This movement on the American left against any U.S. involvement in Venezuela is gaining traction. We've got Noam Chomsky, Roger Waters, Oliver Stone, Boots Riley, Ilan Omar, AOC, Jill Stein, and Bernie. Why have you stopped short of calling Maduro of Venezuela a dictator? Well... And of course, we've got this lovely guy. Donald Trump hunts up Venezuela. It is not a good look when your slogan is co-opted by a tyrannical dictator. Now, Trump usually loves authoritarians, but this time it seems like it's the liberals who are siding with one. Now, I am not a pro-Trump military hawk. For reference, my spirit animal is Ruth Bader Ginsburg in workout clothes. But this movement is dangerously glorifying a brutal dictator and promoting inaction. And that is the worst combination for ordinary Venezuelans. First off, if you look closely at these protests, it's very unlikely you'll bump into, you know, an actual Venezuelan. Second, let me remind you what's going on back home. Inflation is at 2.69 million percent. Bolivares are so worthless, people are literally making origami out of them. Mass malnutrition and shortages of medicine have caused life expectancy to fall 3.5 years, and at least 3 million people have fled their country, causing a Syria-level refugee crisis. I mean, things are so bad, kidnappers have stopped kidnapping because people can't pay ransom. Some pundits of the left claim Venezuela is an economic ruin because of U.S. sanctions, but they are wrong. Venezuela is a economy completely collapsed in 2016 after decades of corruption and incompetence of Chavez and Maduro's narco-kleptocratic governments. Until very recently, U.S. sanctions were only travel bans and frozen bank accounts on specific government officials. Like, for example, Chavez's former bodyguard, who accepted over a billion dollars in bribes, has three private jets, and owns more horses than a Revolutionary War battalion. One of them is named Tinkerbell. That has nothing to do with how corrupt this guy is, but I just found it fascinating. In January, the sanctions on the state oil company were designed to stop funding Maduro's regime and their flamboyant watches. While Venezuela's situation is a dumpster fire, hands-off Venezuela advocates seem to be living on another planet. We just returned from two weeks in Venezuela, and we are happy to report that there is no humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. I'm sorry, what? Just a crisis of U.S. imperialism. It is true that the U.S.'s history of meddling in Latin America should give people pause, but complete inaction out of fear of the U.S. repeating its interventionist mistake from the 80s is not the answer. Hands off can actually mean blood on your hands. So what does American support look like? Supporting Venezuela's efforts to restore democracy. The U.S. and 50 other countries recently recognized opposition leader Juan Guaido as the new interim president. Is this a coup d'etat? Trained by the CIA. This is regime change number 68. Juan Guaido is not an American right-wing puppet leading an illegitimate coup, but a social democrat appointed by the National Assembly, the only remaining democratically elected institution left in Venezuela. Guaido's job is to ensure free and fair elections because newsflash the last election was not free or fair dictators aren't really into that the problem is venezuela is being used to further polarize political agendas on both sides republicans are trying to drum up another red scare for their 2020 campaign what it's doing in venezuela All that worked out so great in venezuela look at venezuela america will never be a socialist country while the left is using it to counter trump because it's what you do 
What unfortunately gets lost in the crossfire is the actual Venezuelan people. People who want a chance to live with electricity, food, jobs, schools, medicine, and a vote that actually counts. If there's one value liberal America appreciates, it's human rights. So let's stop this morally relativist, hands-off approach that is just a euphemism for inaction. Let's provide humanitarian aid and support efforts to restore democracy and prioritize people's rights to life, health, and freedom. Okay, what did you think of that clip? There's something I write about in regards to the Reagan presidency, the 1980s in general, the rise of 24-hour news networks. Um, I refer to Gears Theory of the MTV Aesthetic. It's a very brief essay, but for me, it was a very powerful essay. Basically, the MTV Aesthetic, he argues, is you foreground a persona and then kind of decontextualize everything around that persona, or you kind of like you situate that persona within a decontextualized environment. And we see that with certainly television news anchors were, you know, extremely important you know as far back as the 1950s but it's amplified to such a you know, profound extent uh, in the 1980s 1990s through today like it's so i see her and i see this kind of performance of like levity and this these kind of like hard cuts these deep that deep that take away essential context for example cutting away from bernie sanders right before he has a chance to speak <laughs> as if he didn't right. have a response to that question or he was right. unable to muster a response it really does remind me of this kind of, again, persona-centric kind of decontextualized messaging that's defined by Gare's notion of the MTV aesthetic. It's one that defined, I think, the Reagan presidency in many ways, too, and you know, was a platform on which Trump also you know, uh, kind of rose to power also, was the strength of his persona uh, without any allegiance to meaningful context. Um, so I see that in this yeah, to quite a great extent. Um, and then it's, of course, it's using old tricks of editing, like, yeah, that have been used since the beginning of motion pictures. But yeah, to me, it's, it seems like she's trying to kind of brand herself. I, I was unfamiliar with Joanna Hausman before you shared this video with me, but it really does, she's kind of trying to brand herself as almost a John Oliver of the right. Uh, yeah. Interestingly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and I also find it fascinating that it's like, I mean, it's, she's not even supposedly like explicitly coming from the right, right? Like the video is framed as what my fellow liberals don't understand about the situation in Venezuela. Of course, it does need to be contextualized, like who Joanna Hausman is and like her ties to so just for context uh her father is ricardo hausman uh ricardo hausman is a harvard uh economist of the sort of chicago neoliberal school trained as an acolyte of that school was actually a member of the pre-chavez economic regime in venezuela that actually gave rise to the revolution <laughs> so uh so he is i i guess we could say you know somewhat ideologically opposed to uh to chavez and maduro and and kind of the the lineage of of socialist leaders that came after that ricardo hausman also works closely with juan guaido it should be noted uh it was was foundational in training him um as a uh as this sort of operative and and yeah i mean i i, I just you know not even just the fact that like that's her dad and that i think her mom had some ties uh as well to uh to the right wing in venezuela that she's able to present what is essentially you know a a right-wing argument to americans 
who don't understand, you know, things like class differences in Venezuela and kind of assume that when you say like the Venezuelan people, you are referring to a totality of, of people who all think the same and come from the same kind of social background kind of playing on the biases of of that sort of like you were saying the decontextualized american perspective of you know we we know about political differences in our country but when it comes to other countries you know yeah we you know there there's no there's no distinction between you know rich and poor you know conservative uh, and left wing and things like that and i think the aesthetics really do play that up right like that's the that's kind of the you you're you're rendered as being this like goofy idiot if you think anything else because well that just because you oppose trump and that's the thing to do you know like all this uh the, joanna houseman i think it's safe to say is fluent in snark uh <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's a rightist message wearing the skin of kind of a leftist comedic aesthetic or right. comedic news aesthetic kind of the daily show aesthetic which i guess you know Per kind of early parts of our conversation, you know, is something the USA certainly point. It's it's you know it's you know it's it's an effective tactic, like you know, kind of straddling you know you know you know taking a given message and packaging it in a way that makes it more palatable to like you know, a given audience, maybe an oppositional audience. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think grounded in in the media aesthetics of something like this and a lot of the work you talk about, I was hoping we could close in thinking of Gramsci's concepts that you draw upon right especially notions of consent because these seem to be played out uh, again and again in these aesthetic formats um, right aligning ourselves with those who are in a position of dominance or who are propelling hegemony and doing so by seeming to insert us as players within that narrative so you know to kind of summarize and tie together this conversation Maybe you could take us through Gramsci's concept and, and maybe how you saw it at work in an example like uh, Joanna Hausman's and in the USIA more broadly. Um, so for those that have, you know, I'm, I'm going to be extremely reductive with Gramsci as you know, one almost inevitably has to be. Um, for sure. For anyone that's, anyone that's uh, you know, read the prison notebooks, you know, there are these three dense volumes of fragments of ideas that are have kind of a loose coherence if you kind of look at it. So you almost have to have like a guide to the prison notebooks to make sense of the prison notebooks. Right. But really, I think in particular, you know, per Gramsci theory, film is especially interesting um, because so much of what he calls like you know, this kind of platform for intellect intellectual engagement, creating in, like public intellect, I think the word he uses is public intellectuals, relies on this idea of common sense. And that's his word, common sense. Uh, that's his phrase. And so I think not only is the messaging itself kind of appealing to this, like, you know, let's kind of show you this in a kind of a no BS objective way. This is common sense that this is, you know, the way it is. This is true because, you know, we're kind of rhetorically constructing it in a way that feels like it's right. But what's interesting about film, too, is, you know, many have called it, you know, the global vernacular. That's actually Miriam Hansen's turn, uh, the, the old University of Chicago professor. So film has this kind of access to, uh, you know, this vernacular sphere that a sphere that maybe other mediums don't like it feels you know it, it kind of appeals to our common sense because it feels real um, and you're able to construct it as real so in a lot of ways this kind of 
this messaging that's meant to kind of cast as wide a net as possible is complemented by the aesthetics, uh, the colloquial vernacular aesthetics of the motion picture, which in a lot of ways uh, again, compounds the Gramscian notion of common sense leading to intellectual engagement, leading to what he calls organic cohesions with the ideas, um, consent. So what we saw with Johanna Houston's video and what we see even with like The Daily Show and John Oliver is, you know, they're working through, again, a colloquial style that appeals to our common sense. Like, levity kind of is uh, opens the door for that, right? And so I'm not criticizing John Oliver necessarily. I, you know, I, I, of course, you know, being a progressive uh, myself, you know, I identify with a lot of the ideas he explores on his program. But levity is certainly kind of a tool by which we're more likely to kind of let down our guard, per se. And moving images to allow us to kind of let down our guard per se it's participate feel a sense of kind of affinity with the speaker feel a sense of affinity with the messaging so that's maybe how i you know again it's it's reductive of gramscian theory but that's maybe how i draw a line from a lot of the early usia motion picture techniques to maybe what we see with social media and with again the kind of the comedy news genre um uh that's so prominent today. I for me that's extremely illustrative. I think that 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 kind of just blew my mind a little bit right there. <laughs> that idea of like that that aesthetic has that effect on audiences as, you know, yeah, this is the this is the common sense. This is what everybody's th- I mean, that's kind of always what, you know, at least, you know, stand-up comedy and other similar kinds of uh comedic idioms trade on that as their kind of rhetorical appeal right you know we're we're all talking about you know these these common foibles that we all it's common experience that we all know is kind of funny and we can make light of it and you're right it does make us let our guard down and make us a little bit more willing to accept the message of a speaker perhaps than we otherwise would be it's the old like oh i could have a beer with ex-politician yes. you know like it's that <laughs> idea it's like it, it it works it's i mean yeah Biden's kind of employing that to a certain extent now. Like it's, and not to say again, this you know politics aside, like it's a certain rhetorical approach. Like you know, it's you know Amtrak Joe. You know, there's you know, I <laughs> right. can have a beer with Amtrak Joe. He did have a beer with this, as we saw last night at the DNC. Oh, but, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did have a beer. You know, you know he yep. he talked to the people. It's, so it's it's that kind of letting one's guard down to feel a sense of. Uh, again, affinity, participation, identification um, that ultimately leads to, again, what Gramsci calls organic cohesions. So it's, again, much more complicated than that per Gramscian theory, <laughs> but that's kind of a, a quick little snapshot of how I interpret it. I mean, as somebody who's using Gramsci in my own dissertation, I think you did a great job. <laughs> I mean, for, for what for what I my insight is worth, I, I think you did a really, really nice job of summing that up. Thank you. <laughs> Can we maybe talk about just just what's what's in your future? Any projects you're currently working on that that you wanted to plug or that that you've been thinking about how you're maybe going to extend this project further? So ultimately, what's interesting to me and I think everyone that works on the USIA is premised upon this notion that there was a dialectic between the creative and administrative labor and the kind of the you know the structures in which they were created um, and administered. So what I think. I'm interested in doing and what I think those of us involved in the media ecology project are interested in doing are bringing in a community of scholars from all over the world to help decentralize the way we talk about the Cold War um, and maybe even the way we talk about documentary and motion pictures because there's such a rich history to be uncovered you know that's perhaps 
idiomatic to, to the area uh, or the culture in which some of these films are produced. You know, I think we have a unique opportunity to say, what does it mean to talk about these policies, talk about these ideas, to tell America's story for audiences outside of the United States? And there's a few things underway, like, uh, you know, there's scholars in Japan, such as Yuka Sushia, who have done incredible work on the USIA in Japan, or USIS in Japan, Hong Sang Kim in Korea, Hadi Garbaji in Iran. And so a lot of this research is underway. But what a lot of us are ultimately helping to do is, again, like, basically say these materials exist. Yeah, this is a 20,000 film archive. There's likely films still at libraries and residual spaces all over the world. There might be more than 20,000 films because they had libraries in which they'd host all these reels of film um, among so many other media. So we'd like to identify that global archive and then put the narration um, and the annotation of that global archive in the hands of people that experience it or have you know, uh, you know, cultural, ideological ties you know, to the spaces in which these circulate it. I think this archive, maybe more than any other, has a unique opportunity in that regard. It's, it's a truly kind of transnational global archive, and it should be, again, historicized and annotated in a way that reflects the plurality of those who worked on a lot of these materials. I think that's the end goal for us. And what I hope to do with this project was basically say, like, here's the bureaucracy, here's how it relates to, you know, here's like the logistical concerns, here are some kind of models by which to think about aesthetics. So I hope my work serves as a foundation, or at least kind of an entry point, a, a, an open door for other scholars to kind of more meaningfully and more closely investigate, again, the, the diversity and plurality of these films. A step to stand on, um, leading to, I think, much more interesting, specific, robust uh, scholarship. So that's ultimately kind of the goal with this. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the wheels are turning, which is good. I mean, I hope they continue to turn. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it, like you said, I think it's this corpus represents such an important turn in American history. And, you know, I mean, to, to the extent, you know, all, all history kind of has its significant moments, but but this archive really does represent kind of a, a fascinating turning point in the way that America was conceptualizing itself and the way that it was interacting with the world. And I think that what you and what these other scholars are doing is is really incredible and very important uh, recovery and historicizing work. So, so thank you for that. Where could people best find uh, some of your work or some of the things that you've uh, that you've done in the past? So the best place to look um, will actually be kind of forthcoming this year. Hadi Garbaji and I are co-editing a special issue of the Journal of E-Media Studies, um, which is an like public access, it's you know free access uh, journal out of Dartmouth, the Dartmouth Library. Um, so it has its ties to the Media Ecology Project too, in that regard. But we have you know a few you know article length, you know traditional academic articles. We're going to have some interviews. We're going to have some uh, what we call rewind accounts um, of you know, people's experiences with the archives. And so it's maybe the first step to kind of putting a, a completely USIA focused publication out there. There's Certainly, there's a, there's a couple books on the USIA. Um, there's a few things on USIA motion pictures, but I don't think there's ever been a journal issue or a book that has spoken only to USIA motion pictures. And this will be, I think, the first instance of that, uh, the first true instance of that. So, yeah, Journal of E-Media Studies should hopefully, fingers crossed, come out by November or December of this year. That's that's our goal. We got some great articles uh, in the pipeline. We're excited to share them uh, with everyone. So. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Well, we'll link to all those things so that people can can keep their eyes on it uh, for when that does come out. Dr. Brett Vukoder, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your insights here on Reverb. From all of us here at Reverb, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon.
Our show today was produced and edited by Benjamin Williams and Alex Helberg. Reverb's co-producers are Calvin Pollock and Sophie Watson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.